You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thank you, Max, and welcome to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Over decades, various efforts have been made to reform the Chicago Police Department. The latest efforts began really in November of 2015 with the release of the video of the shooting of Laquan McDonald. That was followed by a detailed investigation of the Chicago Police Department by the Department of Justice and has now led to a draft consent decree between the Illinois Attorney General and the city of Chicago. We're going to talk about those efforts today and what police reform in Chicago will really look like. Here to talk about both the DOJ report as well as the effort at reform of the CPD is Karen Sheely, the Director of Police Practices Project at the ACLU of Illinois. Karen, welcome to Talking Liberties. Thank you for having me on. So let's just start with a little bit of background. You know, advocates, journalists, observers for years um, have talked about the need for the Chicago Police Department to be reformed. Why is that? What are actually kind of the problems or issues uh, that people think need to be addressed? We've gone through cycles of police reform efforts in Chicago for decades. You can go back to the first Mayor Daley when he instituted the first police board, which was supposed to be the first version of civilian oversight of a department. And all of the efforts that have happened to date really haven't taken hold. They didn't last much longer than the spotlights coming off at press conferences. So we've had cycle after cycle of terrible uh, news headlines followed by promises of reform and no commitment to make a real fix. So what have been, when you think about the issues that have kind of generated those press conferences, is it around use of force issues? Is it around, you know, what are the kinds of issues that have, you know, kind of led to these kinds of efforts? Well, the John Bird scandal stands out. Um, there, police detectives were using torture to get statements from black men. And they ended up incarcerated in addition to having force used against them. So the corruption in the Chicago Police Department runs really deep. And uh, there has been a long history of a code of silence um, covering over for police officers who commit those kinds of constitutional and moral violations. And then, as you said, you think that the that those efforts then at reform after those kinds of events— um, why have they failed? Why have they not worked out in the past? Well, my hope is the reason is that there hasn't been sufficient external oversight of those efforts. But if you look back, um, you, you know, after a series of scandals, the police department opened up uh, the Independent Police Review Authority to be the civilian investigative body over the police department. And over time, we learned it was starved for resources and didn't have the ability to kind of break the code of silence that was happening within the department. Um, and they, they didn't have the sufficient investigators or uh, sufficient leadership to, to overcome the, the many problems that the department has. Um, we've also learned since then just how dysfunctional internally the Chicago Police Department is. That agency was supposed to be... Uh, a, an outside agency that would review police misconduct complaints, but there were too many barriers for them to be successful. 
One, they didn't have enough resources. And two, the union contracts that the FOP and the other police unions negotiated with the city of Chicago tied the hands of investigators. They weren't allowed, for example, to investigate complaints if they weren't accompanied by an affidavit. And if you talk to somebody who's just been abused by the police, the last thing they want to do is put themselves under a threat of perjury in order to make a complaint. So the thing that seems that has led us to this moment was the January 2017 report by the Department of Justice about the Chicago Police Department. What did that report say? What did it indicate in terms of these problems and and the needs to go forward with them? The report concluded that there was a systemic, unconstitutional pattern of uses of force in Chicago. So we're not talking about isolated incidents of officers using force. It was a widespread problem that was happening, uh, especially concentrated in the black community. If you want to be very depressed and get a stomach ache, I recommend that you open it up and, and search for children because there's a section of the report dedicated to uses of force against children by the Chicago Police Department. Uh, One example was a 16-year-old girl who was tased at her school uh, while she was uh, being expelled for having a cell phone on her. So a cell phone led to the police being called, led to a young woman being tased. I believe it was a school resource officer who was already there. But she was being kicked out for a cell phone, and uh, she was hit with a baton and tasered at her school. Another example is that uh, an officer used a taser in drive-stun mode uh, against a woman who was having a mental health crisis. And the only documented actions uh, that justified that use of force was that she failed to follow verbal commands and that she stiffened. So, you know, the, the widespread use of tasers, not as a substitute for legal force. I think a lot of people think that it's good to give police officers tasers because they'll reach for that instead of a gun. The stats don't really show it. They, they show instead that tasers are used as an implement of control, mm-hmm. and uh, they're, it's a painful experience for a lot of people. Another portion of the DOJ report that I think it's important to put in context is that the police department itself internally is really struggling. There are two signs of that I'll point to. There are many in the report. One is that the span of control or the number of supervisors is totally out of uh, line with other cities. We have roughly 1 to 38 or 1 to 24 officers per sergeant in Mm -hmm. Chicago. DOJ recommends 1 to 10. So there's just not enough supervisors to oversee officers who are on the street. And we're also not supporting officers through training. They were getting training videos on use of force from the 80s or through mental health uh, access. Uh, One startling statistic from the the findings was that a CPD officer suicide rate is 60% higher than the national average and more officers die of suicide in Chicago than in the line of duty. And there aren't adequate resources provided by the par- department to help officers who would find themselves in a crisis or in need of help. For 13,000 officers, there were three people assigned to that task. Wow. So a couple things happened after the DOJ report. Uh, the first is, is that the Trump administration came into office and really sort of decided not to pursue action, a consent decree, some kind of oversight of the police department. The other thing was is that the ACLU filed a lawsuit. 
That's right. So tell me about that lawsuit, who's involved with it, and sort of what it is that you're seeking and and what motivated you to do that. We represent community groups from around the city. Communities United, Community Renewal Society, One North Side, and Next Steps. These organizations have members who have been impacted by police violence and have an interest in seeing police reform um, actually have a follow-through this time. Uh, Our lawsuit had three primary claims. The first was that police use excessive force on a systemic basis, much uh, as the DOJ explained. The second is that people of color are um, especially targeted for those uses of force. And the third is that people with disabilities and their interactions with police officers are especially problematic. If you look nationwide, one-third to one-half of people who are killed by police officers uh, have disabilities. So this is a matter of police not knowing how to deal with with folks who are in a mental health crisis. A mental health crisis or a disability that uh, police officers need to have training so they know how to communicate with the person. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, you you talked about these community groups that, that the ACLU represents. What kind of experiences do they have, generally speaking? I, I mean, what what are the sorts of things that happen to folks that are problematic to you uh, most directly about the need for reform. You know, I'll, I'll tell you one story that a woman who is a member of Communities United has a son who uh, was arrested during a, a, a police shooting incident, and he's still spending time in jail. She has another son who has intellectual disabilities and who has had uh, contact with the police in the past when he was in a mental health crisis. Um, she's now afraid because he has a hard time following orders and he's likely to run if uh, he is frightened, that he'll be placed in a situation where police officers will use force against him. And when people flee, that is one of the times that uh, the DOJ noted that there isn't sufficient policy or training for officers uh, in terms of using force or uh, following up with, with further action. On July 27th of this year, the Illinois Attorney General's office and the city unveiled and released a draft consent decree that's aimed at covering and directing police reform in the city of Chicago going forward. Um, How does that affect or complement your lawsuit? How does that work in in terms of the process on that? Our lawsuit... Uh, is still active and pending before the federal court. But we made an agreement with the city and the AG, along with our partners in the Black Lives Matter lawsuit, which was also filed, to stay our lawsuits, which is pressing the pause button on our lawsuits, while the city and the AG negotiated their consent decree. We were allowed to provide feedback about what we thought should be in the consent decree, and we're now providing feedback about what's missing The next steps in the process are that after they receive that feedback, uh, it'll go before a federal judge. And once the consent decree is entered, our negotiations um, have have resulted in a big win for the community groups that we represent. Unlike any other consent decree with the DOJ or any other entity that we're aware of, 
our clients will be able to enforce the consent decree, um, which means that as political winds shift, there'll still be people who are there who are in it for the long haul to make sure that reform happens. And that long-term commitment, therefore, will be present through the voice of the community groups. Through the voice of the community groups and the ACLU as their attorneys, we're making the commitment to be there for the long haul. Great. Um, Before we talk about the draft agreement, before it was released, there was a lot of publicity around one issue that was not able to be resolved and included in uh, in the agreement itself. And that is that the attorney general and the city could not agree about whether or not, I cannot believe I'm about to say these words, they could not agree about whether or not a police officer should have to record and report the reason that they drew their weapon and pointed it at someone. Let me ask you the easy question. Should that be included in the final agreement? Yes. Police officers should write down when they point a gun at someone. And going further than that, there should be restrictions on when police officers point a gun at someone. That's something that's also not in the current agreement. Let's talk, turn then, about the agreement. You've had a chance to look it over now. Um, We're recording this a week after the agreement was released. Uh, Compare it to agreements in other cities. Um, What's your perspective and the perspective of your clients in terms of what needs to be there to make it even stronger and make it capable of really guiding real reform in the city of Chicago and the police department. This is a huge document, so there are many issues we'd like to see changed. I'll highlight a few of them for you now. One thing we've noted is that there's been a failure of communication between the state's attorney's office, the public defender, and the police department about what's happening with officers in all three locations. And while this agreement requires the state's attorney's office to tell the police department if an officer lies, They're not required to say if they violate the Constitution. And contrary to requirements for prosecutors, there is not a mechanism for the police department to tell the state's attorneys if they find that their officers have lied. So an officer could lie, the police department could uncover that, and they they wouldn't be required as of now to tell the state's attorney's office that the officer has lied. And this could be about something big or small. Right. This is, uh, it's called Giglio. It's the Mm -hmm. the case that requires uh, that the state's attorney turn over information to criminal defendants about this. And the the U.S. Department of Justice in its report found that there wasn't a mechanism to provide this information to state's attorneys. And that is one of the pieces that hasn't been fixed in this consent decree. When you think about the code of silence and how lies have been replicated kind of throughout the police department and then echoed over into criminal prosecutions, we think this is a serious problem. What else do you see is missing from the decree? We're very concerned about the approach that the decree takes toward improving interactions between police and people with disabilities. There's a focus in the decree on the CIT program, uh, crisis intervention program. Uh, And it really focuses on training officers. That's one important step, but it really, CIT, if it's going to work, should be a three-legged stool, and that's only one leg of it. What are the other two? The other two are making sure that there are alternative responses for uh, people who are in mental health crisis. It could be as easy as a referral from the 911 operator, 
Or it could be sending a social worker or someone other than the police to interact with somebody who's in a, in a crisis situation. So somebody who really has the training to deal with someone in that condition or in that moment um, so that they aren't necessarily interacting with the person isn't interacting with police or with the justice system in that way. Right. The goal is to try to keep people out of the criminal justice system when they need help. Do other cities do this better? Yes, we're about 20 years behind other cities. Um, and the other piece is that if police are called and police do arrive, that you need alternatives to the criminal justice system and hospitalization for people. So there's a lot of focus in the decree, appropriately, on de-escalating situations. Mm-hmm. So bringing down the temperature, getting people back to the level to where they're they're no longer in crisis. But there, there aren't plans for what the police can do next. And police officers, you know, there have been nationwide studies, they don't like to end a call and not take any action. So It's not what they're trained to do. No, and, and really, they, they don't like to be social workers right. in this situation anyway. Right. So, you know, for the first step, getting social workers in is a, is a good idea. But, you know, if, if, if there is a, a situation where a crime is happening and there's a need for a police officer to be there— but there's really not a need for someone to be entered into the criminal justice system. Having alternatives where uh, you can take someone to a drop-off center that uh, where they can get some counseling on the spot or um, other types of services. Maybe, maybe someone needs a referral to a housing agency or uh, other social services. We can be putting our resources as a community and as a city into getting people help instead of paying for their time at Cook County Jail. Jail. Yeah. Um, are there other areas, are there other big, large areas that you think need to be in a final decree? The pointing a firearm is a, is a major issue. Um, and in addition, the, the city is putting off, uh, kicking the can on creating a foot pursuit policy. They're having uh, a, a period of three years while they're assessing whether or not it's needed. The Department of Justice report said that it was needed immediately. And that's actually... Foot pursuit seems to be something that in shootings or some of the videos that have been released of late that often is a part of what's happening. You're, they're actually pursuing someone and then there's a, a use of force. Is that right? Right. And, and it's really necessary to have a policy to guide officers and prevent them from both taking and creating unnecessary risks. There are times when it, it may be appropriate to do a foot pursuit, but um, it, it's risky for officers when it happens too. How can people make their voice heard on this if they see something or have heard something here uh, that they really think should be part of this? The attorney general is collecting feedback from the public, which uh, she will then share with the city to help in further negotiations before the final decree is put before the court. So we really have an opportunity right now as a city to influence the final version of the decree. And given how critical it is for reform and how long we're going to be living with it, uh, I encourage everyone who's listening to reach out. And those comments are due by? They're due by August 17th. We've only been given three weeks to do it during this time period. And you can uh, send your comments to the Attorney General at policereform at atg.state.com dot il dot us or call 833-243-1498 in addition 
we have on our website a list of reforms that we think are necessary uh, th- that aren't currently in the decree. It's guided by our clients and their experiences, and we hope that you'll take a look at those. And we've made it easy for everyone to uh, send those comments to the AG as well. Great. Um, what happens then? People make comments, the AG gets those, shares them with the city. What's the next step in this process? We all need to keep an eye on that Uh, negotiation that'll happen once they receive it and continue to put political pressure on the city to make changes to make sure that this is an A-plus strong decree. The next step after that is that they will file the decree in federal court before Judge Dow. Um, My understanding is that the judge plans to have a public fairness hearing on the decree at that point, and there'll be another period of public comment before it's entered in a permanent way. And then after that, it'll be implemented. It'll be the enforcement that you talked about before. And so that's really a long-term process. There is. The decree calls for a monitor to oversee the long-term reform of the police department. There are goals over the next couple of years to create new policies, train officers, and then to begin to assess the progress of the reform effort. How will we know that policing has changed in Chicago as the result of this process? We'll listen to each other, for one. And the monitor is going to be making public reports every six months. So we'll have a sense of what's happening internally that we haven't been able to have before. And that's going to help us keep track of whether or not the reform is uh, is taking hold. Karen, thank you so much for coming and talking about these issues today and telling people the steps that they can take. Uh, I hope that you'll come back in a year or two years to talk about where we're at and, and, and where this is. I think this is one of these really important issues we're going to need to follow as time goes along. I'd be happy to. We're committed to long-term reform. Great. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. That's our episode of Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. I want to thank our guest, Karen Sheely, the director of the Police Practices Project at the ACLU, for taking time to talk with us today. To find the information about how you can contact the Attorney General's office, you can go to our website at aclu-il.org slash cpdreformnow, all one word, and it'll direct you to how you can comment. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever, executive producer Chris Olson. This episode was mixed by Philip Von During. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can listen to us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and on Google Play. Make sure to subscribe and make sure that you rate us so that we hear from you. You can email us directly at talkingliberties, one word, at ACLU, il.org. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois.